Thank you, Nicholas. Um, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we, have a, we have a very distinguished panel here today. We have uh, three industry leaders or leaders of uh, very important uh, industry bodies. We have next to me Mr. Panos Laskaridis, who's the president of the European Community uh, Ship Owners Association and the CEO of Lavinia Corporation and Laskaridis Shipping Company, who was uh, earlier today uh, received uh, an award for his uh, uh, contribution to shipping. Mr. Yanis Platsidakis, the chairman of Intercargo and the managing director of Anangel Maritime Services, Inc. And Mr. Nikos Tsakos, who's the chairman of Intertanko and the president and CEO of Tsakos Energy Navigation. So we have people here who have a wealth of experience and knowledge within the uh, shipping sector. And in order to uh, get this going, because the, the uh, topic we're discussing are the industry challenges and the roadmap ahead, we're going to concentrate on geopolitical and regulatory developments in particular, and looking at how the industry is responding to these uh, challenges and developments. And as an introduction, what I, what I would like to ask the panelists is just briefly, very briefly, if they can just describe what their organizations, describe the organizations they're representing, the main concerns, and the projects uh, they are advancing or considering. So if I can start with Mr. Laskaridis first. Thank you, George. As the audience can see, presidents go quite cheap on this panel. So. Uh, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Yes, um, I have the honor and pleasure to be the chair of the European Ship Owners Association. Associations, please pay attention to the last S. Ours is not a direct entry association. It's an association where members are the national associations of the 27 European states. As such, they are represented in the board of EXA. Now, <clears throat> EXA has, like I suppose other organizations, a quite diverse mission and vision statement, but in short, its work is to present and engage with the European stakeholders in shipping, develop its own views on what is going around in legislation and regulation, work both in Europe and also outside of Europe, and the reason why we want to work both inside Europe and outside Europe is because inside Europe we normally tend to get the problems and outside Europe we tend to try and resolve them. By this I mean that EXA is very strongly against regional regulation and very much in favor of international regulation, just as almost every other organization is. Uh, in short, the duty of EXA is to represent its ship owners of all kinds, and we have different kinds of ship owning activities. Of course, by far the largest and the most important one is the European deep, deep water fleet, the, the Trump fleet, but there are other smaller sectors and fleets which are no less important simply because they have a bigger constituency, they employ more European uh, seafarers, and therefore uh, they are also 
equally important when the stakeholders and the main stakeholders, as I said before, are the European Parliament, the Commission, the European Commission, and the Council of Ministers deal with our, uh, our problems. But perhaps a little, a little bit more later, but this is mainly what we do at EXA, lobby in favor of the interests of the European ship owners community. Thank you. Thank you, George. Uh, I'm honored to be the chairman of Intercargo for the last uh, almost six years. Intercargo was the brainchild of the late Anthony Angelicusis, who in uh, the early 1980s realized that the industry, the dry bulk industry, wanted to have a floor uh, to express its views and concerns about the status of the market at that time and also for the future. So Intercargo was uh, established in 1982, and uh, we have gone a long way since then. We are a direct entry association, and today we represent something close to about 20% of the world dry bulk uh, fleet. Uh, a big portion of that is Greek-owned uh, fleets, which makes sense because, as you all know, some 22% of the world um, uh, dry cargo fleet is uh, Greek-owned. We have uh, representation at IMO where we can express our views about the industry, uh, of the shipping industry in general, and specifically about the dry bulk uh, sector. And I think what we offer to our members today is a floor where they can express their views, their problems and concerns about the existing and the upcoming uh, regulations. And uh, I think we run a very efficient uh, association. We have uh, four persons to be increased to five of the Secretariat, and uh, we are looking forward to more uh, entries in the future. So I take this opportunity to invite uh, people of dry bulk uh, shipping to join us, because the more we are, the better uh, representation we have. Thank you. Thank you, George. Well, as Mr. Platsidakis uh, said, uh, Really, we are union leaders, or as we say in Greece, syndicalistes. So we are the, the union leaders of, of the poor tanker owners. And uh, uh, as uh, you said, the Intercargo was uh, founded uh, with, uh, with Greek roots. Intertango was actually uh, the result of the 1970 first uh, oil crisis and uh, that led uh, the establishment of Intertango by the majority Scandinavian and Greek members uh, at the time. Uh, today we represent about 70% of the world independent tanker fleet and happy to say that we opened up for the gas carriers in the last uh, year and a half and we have 90% of the world's uh, gas carrying fleet as our members, the LNG and the LPG, and we want to thank our members, many of them sitting on this panel for their continuous, uh, continuous uh, support. We try to focus on commercial, basic issues, and technical. Uh, the challenges that we have faced, like the changes of the double-double and the future changes of the, of the SOX and OX are uh, putting a lot of focus for us and strain on the environmental and technical side, and we try to represent uh, our, uh, our members in that. 25% of our membership and growing is Greek uh, membership, and I would like to uh, thank them for the support they have given to the, the association. And we opened the Greek office uh, uh, earlier uh, or in late last year, and we're very proud to have a Greek office after so many years. Thank you.
Thank you, Nico. Um, and thank you to all the panelists for the description that you've given. The, what would be interesting also is, is because we know that there is also the round table where the various organizations meet and, um, and uh, discuss the, the issues which uh, brought to them by their members. Is that, do you find that is an effective way for, for shipping and the industry to put forward its voice? Yeah, I, I think I'll ask that to Yanni first. Actually, I will say that uh, in, um, in the late 80s, uh, the then president, chairman rather of Intercargo, Fred Chow, realized that the industry, the shipping industry in total, needed a unified uh, opinion to approach the upcoming uh, regulations and rules. And this is how the round table actually was established at the time. The round table is a kind of an official entity it doesn't exist as, as an entity itself. It's an agreement between the four associations, which is uh, the International Chamber of Shipping, Intertanko, Intercargo, and BIMCO. And they sit together, actually the general managers sit together once a month, and the chairman, uh, I would say a couple of uh, times a year, and they try to, uh, to reach common grounds and common agreements on the various regulations in order to express a unified view at IMO. And I think it's something that works well. It doesn't necessarily mean that we all agree on the same uh, topics, but it's, uh, it's a very positive uh, thing to exist. Yes, thank you, George. I agree with Mr. Plachidakis. I think uh, we are a very fragmented industry, and uh, it, there is a danger for everybody to have a, a different association. And uh, like Mr. Lascaridi said, uh, we're full of presidents here, so I think uh, we need to coordinate those presidents. So we try to get a round table and sit around it uh, and discuss these issues. I think uh, we have made also structural changes that uh, we are not uh, allowed to make uh, a press release as an independent association unless we give an eight or a, a week notice to the other round table uh, members. So if this is an agreement, uh, and I think it has worked very well uh, so far, uh, and it helps that uh, the majority right now of the round table members we can speak the same language, actually Greek. So I think this, uh, this makes, it, makes it easier or not to communicate sometimes. I'd just like to mention one point here, to change the question a little bit to Mr. Laskaridis, because, I, because we all listened with uh, great interest to the, the speech you gave uh, over lunch. And the, the, one of the points you made is that maybe there is a problem within shipping in the way that it's represented, given that it is a, it, it's an industry that tries to be low-key, its representatives try to come below the radar, not, not to put their head above the radar. And maybe you felt, that was your, your belief, that maybe that's not the best way in order to deal with the other members of, you mentioned the cluster, so the European cluster, who, who are those who give more impetus to shaping regulations. Thank you, George. Uh, I, mentioned this, I mentioned that at lunchtime, referring to our type of shipping. But there are other types of shipping as well, and they are not as quiet as we are. They are much more vocal, and they are much more active in pursuit of their interests. And generally speaking, these are the type of ship owners, and they represent the type of business which is much more in the public eye for different reasons. And they feel that they should be much more visible than, than we think we, we should. Um, they have been 
trying to be visible and influence things and lobby for things over a long period of time. We are not so good at that, and we have not done that um, you know, very actively, but things are changing, and, and the situation is changing, and you know, these days uh, everyone in shipping has his own way of saving the world. And I think the largest category, which is our type of shipping, and of course Intercargo and Intercanco, Intertanco fall squarely into this category, we must also step forward and try and influence the quarters where decisions are taken. There are decisions that are taken for today's sake, and these are more or less practical decisions, but there are also decisions being considered, perhaps not yet taken, but being considered, but, but you know, the thinking is put and the policies and the strategies are, are being put in, um, you know, on the, on the rails for the next years, for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And there is a quite lively discussion about this, and we need to desperately be represented in this area. Uh, this is very much something that the politicians love to do, because they also have their dreams, whether realistic or not, but they tend to live out of these promises for the future, and we must be closely represented in those type of discussions. And there have been such type of discussions. A lot of these discussions are taking place behind closed doors in, in an unofficial way, and as the efficiency of the roundtable uh, shows, mostly you achieve results not in the official discussions, but in the unofficial ones. So um, there are areas of policy and strategy and, and thinking about the future of shipping being discussed right now for the next 10, 20, 30 years in various areas. And there's just no question that shipping must attend and must engage with all these people before, we, before the train leaves the station. Okay, thank you. Um, I mean, I guess one of the areas you're referring to are the environmental regulations, which are very prevalent in the, in the public eye at the moment and have been for the last few years whether it's ballast water treatment, the sulfur cap, <laughs> um, and the emissions uh, regulations as well. How has, how, what has shipping done or what can it do uh, in order to make its voice heard or to set the agenda? Yeah, sorry, I, I will preempt my two colleagues. Uh, George, I, I, I felt from the question you posed and also from the memo you sent me that you also yourself have a feeling that shipping is not doing enough in this respect. I want to put some things in, in proper context. There is a very lively debate about the environment already since many years. The world is very concerned about this. The latest big demonstration of this concern, as we all know, happened last year at the Paris, at the Paris meeting. At the Paris meeting, Shipping was debated extensively. Many quarters have pushed for it to be included in the Paris Agreement. 190 countries decided that it should not be included in the agreement simply because everybody understood that shipping is a very benign, environmentally benign activity 
and did not deserve to be included in the Paris Agreement, which regulated so many other businesses. However, shipping is a responsible industry. Not only is it a responsible industry and has promised and has undertaken to do, and here I quote at least what is European EXA policy, that shipping is a responsible industry and it will do everything that is fair, proportionate and equitable relating to its own responsibilities in trying to be proactive and take measures to improve the greenhouse gas situation. Nothing more and nothing less. And of course, outside Europe, we are engaging and we are supporting strongly the ICS activities, which we hope will lead into a formulation at the IMO of a policy which will be satisfactory for everyone. The problem is that there are very strong and different forces in, in play. The environmental lobby is extremely strong, but it is also motivated by various, by various reasons and various criteria, some of them very obscure. The political lobbies are also sometimes extremely motivated simply because this is an easy catch, vote catching exercise and this attitude is mostly demonstrated by the European Parliament. The European Commission is a sort of a more even balanced body and of course the Council of Ministers is always the most conservative one. There has been a change in the European policy recently which is more towards aligning it with the efforts being taken at the ICS towards the IMO. Initially, the policy was, unless there is a satisfactory solution at the IMO by 2021, the EU will take unilateral action to include shipping in the ETS system by 2023. This has, after the trialogue discussions being moderated into, we will wait until 2023. And if at that time there is no satisfactory solution through the IMO regulation, then we will consider taking steps. So it pays to be perseverant. All the other organizations are equally concerned and are equally submitting their opinions. Shipping, broadly speaking, is unified, has a uni unified approach, which basically says yes, we feel the responsibility, we want to contribute, but we will not go for uh, you know, daydreaming or promises which cannot be fulfilled and promise miracles which are never going to happen. I don't want to tire you with more specific uh, proposals, of which there are many. My colleagues here know them quite well because they are very material and, and engaged in, in specifying them. You hear many proposals like 50% reduction by 2050, 60% by 2060, and so on and so forth. This is still all discussed. One point I would like to make at the end of this, <coughs> of this statement is we have to look also for quite radical solutions. And we have to discuss things which henceforth have not been discussed at, in depth things for which there is no policy, there is no strategy yet, but there are discussions coming up, and one of them 
is speed reduction. This is a very complicated issue. So far it has not gotten anywhere, but it's certainly an issue that will have to be discussed one day. So maybe Yanis or Nikos would like to, to add something to all of this. Well, I, I would like, first of all, uh, I agree with Mr. Lascaridis about the responsibility of shipping and uh, I think every side of the, of the industry, but we have, a, we have a recent or relative recent example in tankers. Uh, when we believe that the legislation is not a fantasy, as Mr. Lascaridis said, uh, the tanker or the, the ship owners, and in this case the tanker owners, in the early 1990s after the Action Valdez, the double-double design change was one of the largest uh, <coughs> changes in ship design uh, since the type uh, movement from, from the sales uh, of the ship. And uh, it, it was the correct decision to be taken. When the industry was convinced, um, we were able to rebuild the whole tanker fleet in, in, within 10 or 15 years at a, at a huge cost of 250 billion 1990s uh, dollars and without any subsidies. So when the industry, and that showed how responsible uh, the ship owners are, that was uh, a real uh, technology that has proven to be correct. It has reduced by 98% any oil spill, as we have seen in, in recent years, and uh, the industry did it uh, without any subsidies, uh, just followed that. So, you know, there is the responsibility. And I agree with you that uh, uh, speed control or slow steaming is a way to reduce our footprint, our environmental footprint, and we should look into it. Trust me. Shipping is a hugely responsible industry. Not, not, only be, not because we are good people, it's because we are, that we cannot do otherwise. The vessels trade worldwide, they're subjected to a number of inspections, port states, arteries, you name it, classification societies, uh, etc. And they don't have an option but to comply with international regulations. And we do. Some people say that we are not proactive the problem, and I do agree not to be proactive, for the reason that there is no responsible uh, listening ear on the opposite side. As a sector, regrettably, we have a low public image. The reason being, as we said in other conferences, that shipping is not part of the economies of the developed world. So there are no listening ears in the politicians, and in the ears of the, of the public. We have to be proactive only in this respect, to try to explain what shipping is doing. Shipping is by far the most effective and efficient way to facilitate world trade. This is what we have to keep on saying to the, to the other people. As far as the future is concerned, there is no doubt that the environment will stay there. Uh, we have to respect the environment, there is no doubt about it. But nevertheless, we have to do our best to enforce uh, logical, practical regulations. As you most probably know, uh, it took some tw 12 years since the Ballast Water Management Treaty was decided to come into force. And even today, after those 12 or 14 years, technology is st still struggling to come along. 
the same problem will, will, uh, shipping will face in the 1st of January 2020 when the cap on low sulfur uh, of high sulfur versus low sulfur uh, fuel will come into force. It was very, in, uh, very, very easy for the regulators, you name IMO in, the, in our case, to say that as of that day, the availability of uh, fuel in excess of 0.5 is prohibited. How come? Where shall we find it? The refiners are not there to produce it. We cannot produce it ourselves. And mind you, give a thought to this. Why didn't the, didn't the, the countries concerned uh, enforce the refineries to have the fuel available? And then we will be the first ones to adopt it. Because it was easy for them. Refine easy for them. Refine easy for them. Refineries are local industries, so they didn't want to touch it. Instead, they wanted to touch the ocean-going fleet. So they passed the bucket to us. And there is great concern that as of that day, low sulfur will not be available. First of all, because the refineries are not prepared to make investments to the tune of several tens of millions of dollars. And second, because they are concerned that the, the sulfur remaining in the, after the production in the refineries, they, they wouldn't know what to do with it. And of course, it's not the end of the, of the story. People say, okay, let's go and install scrubbers. Scrubbers, to my personal opinion, will become an environmental issue some years later, because it is, it stands today, the remaining sulfur will be dumped into the sea. And it's, it's a matter of time that people will start wondering, why do we dump sulfur in the sea? So the, the sulfur, the remaining sulfur as a residual, will be obliged to stay on board the ships. And instead of, of carrying uh, grain or iron ore, we'll be um, carrying sulfur around. So let's try to, to, to persuade the public that we have to be pragmatic, and shipping is there to adopt any real uh, regulation, any regulation of substance. Thank you. Thank you. But staying on this point, because and, and you, you've all been very eloquent, especially on this on this particular issue. But staying on this point about the sulfur cap, uh, you know, the, the the recent meeting of the IMO said that the the sulfur cap will come into force on the on the first of January two thousand and twenty. Uh, at the same time, the majority, the, the very large majority of ships haven't converted to scrubbers. So what is, your, what is your expectation as to what will happen in the ensuing years and, and when, we, when we get nearer to uh, 2020? I don't know who wants to... George, the, yeah, this is a worrying prospect. There is no chance that anything near a respectable percentage will install scrubbers and I don't know if anyone will ever install scrubbers in a large percentage. The question then will be, who will pay, <coughs> I'm sorry, on whose account will fall the price difference between the 0.5 and the 3.5% uh, fuel? And what is worrying for us, what is worrying for the ownership, is that we may have to carry this burden if no other solution is found. You know, obviously there is a conflict there between cargo and ship, and we all know that cargo is more powerful than the ship. So that would not be a good development, and that would be a worrying development. But let's 
Let's get until then, and we'll see, you know, how much oil will be produced, what the price differences will be, you know, and whether we can be pressured into absorbing a price difference which would be totally unreasonable to absorb, or whether at the end of the day the consumer has to pay for having a cleaner planet. I mean, it, it's unthinkable that the ship owner or the, or the cross trader shall be made the scapegoat to pay for the world not to have any sulfur, you know, emitted around. We'll see. I, I'm not sure what will happen. I don't know if my colleagues have any better ideas. No, I think it will be a problem. It's because, as we said, the refiners are not prepared to, to make it available. Scrubbers cannot be installed within such a short period of time, and they don't necessarily solve the problem. Uh, the price differential will be substantial, and uh, I, we, I hope that it will be passed on to the consumer at the end of the day, because the shipping industry simply cannot afford to do it. So we have to be aware that we will pay for it. But there is no problem to pay for it if we all agree to this. But whether it is uh, as, as an approach, it is a practical approach or not. Well, being uh, optimistic, I believe that uh, the industry has really stood its ground. And uh, when uh, this legislation was being introduced, they were hoping that by now 40% of the world's fleet would have already been converted with scrubbers. And I think not even 3%, and the 3%, 1%, 1% is converted and mainly on specialized vessels in, in, uh, in, in, the, in the Baltic and in, in, in specialized zones. So uh, we expect to have a significant also uh, distortion in the market. We're going to see having tankers will be happy because we will see a big movement of uh, product carriers moving uh, and products from uh, uh, the young refineries in China in, in the Middle East and India to, towards the West. So I think the world will go around anyway. So. Uh, I think the, a solution will, will be found. Okay, uh, thank you. If we can just move now from the topic of regulations, just to look at, um, because we're coming short of time, at geopolitical developments. And uh, over the years, I mean, we, we have seen the growing importance of China and Asia as a whole in terms of uh, trades and, um, uh, and cargoes. I mean, I mean, I think there's a general consensus that this is a, this is a, a trend which is irreversible uh, and, the, and the importance of, of that region is, uh, is significant as well. And given that we're in Athens, um, looking at it, let's say, from the perspective of Greek shipping, uh, how do you view the, 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 the future of, of the shipping industry here in Greece uh, and with, um, with these developments? George, when we speak about the future of the Greek shipping industry, we speak about the future of our fleet, because that's, that's our main interest and our main concern. And our fleet is Europe's deep water, you know, long distance Trump fleet. Uh, first of all, we have to make the importance of this fleet known and understood in Europe. And as I think I have alluded to during the lunch, this is not the case today. If you speak to the stakeholders in Europe, they have no bloody idea of what 
the importance of this fleet is. They know very well what the importance of the cross-channel fleet is, of the Baltic fleet, of the Roro fleet is, but they have no clue, no idea, no appreciation of how important the deep water fleet is. So this is, uh, this is one of the top priorities. The, <clears throat> I'm sorry. The second priority is to connect this fleet to the general discussion, which is very lively in Europe, of the competitiveness of the European fleet. The competitiveness is much talked about in Europe and by all stakeholders, except it is misapplied because there's no issue of competitiveness in the short sea shipping or in the river shipping or in the passenger shipping or in the rural shipping because simply these businesses are in Europe and they are not going to go anywhere anytime soon. The only fleets which can emigrate are the Trump fleets, which can be here today and gone tomorrow. And therefore, it is very important to look at what the advantages are which are offered by other international shipping centers and compare them to what is happening in Europe. At EXA, we have commissioned last year a study by Deloitte, which we have presented to the commissioners, both the competition and the transport commissioner, and which identifies a number of weaknesses, we call them gaps, policy gaps, uh, which distinguish to the negative uh, the European situation compared to other international shipping centers such as you know, Dubai or Singapore or Hong Kong or Shanghai or Vancouver or, or such places. And we are trying to, to, to connect the importance of the Trump fleet to this discussion about competitiveness. And this is one anchor of this discussion. The second anchor of the, the same discussion is that this fleet, as I mentioned earlier, is extremely important to Europe, and not only to Europe, it's extremely important to the Western world. And funnily enough, whilst in Europe we have to struggle to make people understand this strategic importance, when we visit the United States, and, and we do that as, as, as UGS every one or two years, the maritime authorities in the States are very much more responsive and, and, and understanding to this strategic situation because I suppose they deal with larger strategic issues being a superpower than each of the European nations by itself. They understand that there is around a very <clears throat> potent, strong, efficient, transparent European shipping arm which is not connected to any particular trading interests. The Greek, the Cyprus, the, Malta, the Maltese fleet, which is the bulk of the transport capability of the Western world, does not have any commercial interest, is not dependent on anyone, and therefore they understand, and the Europeans must understand it as well, that if God forbid one day everybody's trade and cargo depends on carrying the business through Chinese or Japanese or Hong Kong or Vietnamese built ships manned by Far Easterners, that's, that's, that's one of the worst things that, that can happen. And I've mentioned also, then we will risk of losing the European shipping industry again to the Far East. This is something that we can, we can defend against it. It's not as difficult as it sounds, and despite the fact that, as was mentioned before, the overall strategic interest is gravitating towards the Far East, 
there is no particular need that the transport activity should go to the Far East. Uh, we can prevent this. Europe has, has weapons to do that. State aid guidelines are probably the most potent weapon. And therefore, you know, we should all be very mindful and try to keep the European fleet as large and as competitive as we can. Thank you very much. Does someone else, uh, either Jan or Nico, want to add something? I, mean, I just wanted to, on, on, the, on the previous question, you said what will happen uh, by 2020. Until the right solution comes, we should slow steamerships and achieve our target of audio emissions. That was on the previous subject, I think, that we all touched upon. And I think, as Mr. Lascaridis said, the, the danger uh, that, uh, that we see is that we are becoming a, a, a non-seafaring nation or continent. I think uh, 30 or 40 years ago in Greece we had about 150,000 seafarers, and right now perhaps we're down to 10% of that, 15,000 seafarers. And I think, of course, this is not only a Greek problem, it's a European problem. And as, as, long as, we're going to, as soon as we're going to lose being a seafaring continent or a seafaring nation, we're going to be like a giant without legs. At some stage we will not be able to support a huge shipping infrastructure without, without seafarers. So, you know, I think it's uh, what you said, anything that the European Union can do, or in our case also the Greek government can do, to get people back, on, uh, back to sea will, will, will make us stronger. Certainly, mining is a big uh, challenge for Greek shipping and, we, and for Europe as well, and we have to address it because something that we can do it ourselves. Uh, regarding the competition from, uh, from the Far East, certainly it's a, big, um, it's a big subject and it's uh, of concern to all of us. But I think the success story of Greek shipping, and has been a success story so far, has been based on the free and fair competition. We shouldn't abolish this mo model because it has proved good. Uh, my concern is that uh, the, 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 countries, uh, the, the countries in the, in the Far East are engaged in a kind of state aid which, is, which distorts the, the game. Uh, as you know, Korea faced a very serious problem. I mean, most of uh, Korean uh, merchant shipping ended up in uh, deep trouble. And we see the government uh, establishing a new fund to assist their shipping companies. I think it's a vicious circle. And certainly, those state aids does come adversely affect Greek shipping. But I would say that as long as they do it, they will give us the opportunity to grow. Don't forget that the problems in Greek shipping in the last uh, seven uh, or so years has been very minor. And to, to the contrary, Greek shipping came uh, out from this recession in a much better shape without any state aid, without preferential cargoes, without preferential loans or subsidies, you name it, simply because we are based on the free and fair competition. And this is what we should be advocating, that we are open to competition and there is nothing to fear about it. I would, uh, as we're coming to the end of the uh, session, I wanted to open up the floor to uh, any questions that there might be from the floor? Yes, uh, Mr. Chairman. Yes, uh, Mr. Chairman. Yes, 
First of all, I'd like to thank the panel for the presentations because the issues which you had to discuss were very concise and very large and it's very quite amenable that you actually put it in such short words. But the question I'd like to ask, I'd like to ask Mr. Lascari this because I happen to share the Board of Exa with me you know, over the last 10 years. I think the main issue we've had here is that, um, would you agree that one of the basic pro uh, problems we have with these regulations is that they're inconsistent, they are somewhat chaotic, and sometimes also fundamentally contradictory. I think we have a couple of people in the audience here who are more technically minded than me, who will actually present the fact that maybe the low sulfur is also not environmentally friendly in the long run. And uh, you, Mr. Plessy, like has mentioned that with the scrubbers, the scrubbers may ultimately be uh, death personified, so it may come back a fallback situation, boomerang. The other aspect I'd like to ask is that would you also think that uh, in the circumstances which we've been facing over the last few years, that perhaps we in particular in the shipping industry, in the Greek shipping industry, have not basically had an enough dynamic approach and actually sometimes in some respects in the past, we've actually, the whole uh, image of the Greek shipping is somewhat distorted. On that note, I'd like to, Mr. Haskell to answer, but in the main thing I'd also like to suggest that I think I am also optimistic that with the drive which we're attaining now, that things may be going in the right direction, but I think we may be suffering in the short term for the wrong reasons. Thank you. Well, thank you, George. And I'm sure you know many of the deliberations we have at EXA because you're there much longer than I am. <clears throat> well, my view is the problem, many of the problems which shipping is facing today are not operational or technical problems. They get fumbled by politics and uh, sentiment, public opinion, inept politicians, and so on and so forth. And it's therefore very difficult to distinguish a discussion on the merits from a discussion which touches upon political and other, you know, sentimental issues. And this is why also EXA and many other people, many other associations and even national associations, as you know, do not try to tackle these problems in a technical way. They resort to political lobbying, mobilizing their MPs in the European Parliament, mobilizing their ministers, and so on and so forth. And I think we need to realize that this is something that will not go away. And I have realized that when once I discussed in a very heated way with somebody who was very strong in trying to convince me that you know shipping has to decarbonize has to stop emitting, it has to reduce its emissions very strongly. And when I was trying as a reasonable engineer, I was trying to educate this person, look, there are no miracles, there is nothing that we can expect within the very short time that magical fuels will come around, whatever is decarbonized fuel is still decades away. This person simply told me, look, you have to know that you have to decarbonize, you will have to decarbonize by the public pressure, and whether you can decarbonize by technical means or not, if you can't, you will have to decarbonize by simply paying. You will have to decarbonize by money. And of course, this is also a very unappetizing uh, prospect. So. Uh, we have to be very careful about this. We, we, uh, you know, we tend to ridicule the politicians, but generally they are much more clever and tricky people than we think. 
So we have to deal with them, and we have to face their arguments. Now, and on the other thing is, uh, and I just w would like to refer to the to the uh, one of the initial questions which we have not touched very much uh, today, which are the main challenges of the European uh, shipping uh, business, which are not very much different from the challenges which are facing the facing the world shipping. And as you know, one year ago, the European Commissioner of Transport has called a very closed kind of session, brainstorming session with a few people to think about what will happen in 30 years from now. And several concerns came about. And if I may very, very briefly mention these, the, competi the competitiveness of the European fleet going along is one. The social agenda is another one. The environmental concerns and how to deal with them is another one. The, what we call the single window, which is the streamlining of all the procedures in the shipping business, starting from the shipper, the ship, the port, the terminal, and the receiver, which today are totally different, both between each one of them and in the different countries, is an extremely important issue. Digitalization has been discussed very much, but whoever is an engineer clearly understands that there is not much sense in dealing and discussing digitalization because this is coming onto shipping. It will come no matter what we do. And the only reason it is not coming as fast as it is coming in every other business is simply the slower speed of transfer of data between ship and shore. And the last one, and I'll close this point, is the concern about the Far Eastern relations, especially China, how to deal with them, why can they invest freely in Europe and we can't invest in China. And this has loomed quite in an important way uh, in the way going forward. Thank you. Uh, we heard about the problem of the sulfur, but technically, if we, if we were going to uh, suggest to the European community or to the world how to provide the solution for this, what would you say? Would you say that they should um, develop some technical way of disposing sulfur and invest in that and subsidize ways of uh, doing that? Uh, also to uh, subsidize refineries to produce uh, the correct type of fuel, uh, what other things should we suggest to the politicians if they insist that it's a very, very important issue and they want to keep the 0.5% limit? Uh, if they don't do anything, will the consumer take the burden at the end of the day? Because at the end of the day, the shipping will have to increase the price at which it transfers the goods. So what do we suggest to them? As we said before, we are there to make use of the low sulfur fuel if available. So if the governments really want to find a quick and practical way out of it, is to make it obligatory for their local uh, refiners to make it available. And then we will oblige. We'll... No, no, I don't know whether they should subsidize or do what. It's up to them to decide what to do. 
They simply pass the problem to the vessels as if I tell you, uh, get ready to go to the moon. I don't ask you how you will go to the moon, but uh, it's obligatory tomorrow to go to the moon. And this is hugely unfair because we find ourselves there ready to adopt any uh, available means to ad address the problems, name it low sulfur uh, fuel or CO2 production, and we find ourselves to be on the defensive for the wrong reasons. People tell us, you have to decarbonize. Hold on, we are owners and managers of ships. We don't produce engines. If the producers of engines produce ones that will make a difference, we are there. They, they are, then then they, they ask us to reduce the production of CO2. But CO2 is directly related to the speed of the vessel. And in most cases, when we time charter the ship, the decision of how, how fast the, the, the ship will go depends on the charter. It's not us. And I many times, if we have heard it before, I excuse myself, that for those of you who have not, when you rent a car from a car agency, let's say you rent two cars. One, you leave it outside from day one, you don't use it. And the other one, you use it and crisscross uh, Athens 24 hours a day at, at your own choice of speed. So who is responsible for the CO2 production? Is it the car rental company? It's the same. I mean, I use this practical example as far as I'm concerned, just to try to give uh, an explanation of how shipping works. Thank you. Uh, professor from the University of Anidis, I will make a revolutionary proposal, very important for increasing the life of captains and all the, so the sailors on the ship more than 20 years. All ships, if you see their deck, is nude. I propose to build gardens of green on every... Thank you very much. Gardens, gardens of green on the decks of the ship in order to increase the average life of captains, not to die at 65, but to die at 900. Θα βάλουμε και τρεφίλια για τους Παναθηναϊκούς, θα βάλουμε τρεφίλια πάνω. Μπράβο, μπράβο. Very good. Εγώ, συνάδελφοι, άκουσα με προσοχή. Α, sorry, συνήθως. Εγώ δεν έχω τίποτα σπουδαία να σας πω, αλλά μια που βρήκα το τηλέφωνο εδώ στη γειτονιά, είπα να ρωτήσω μερικά πράγματα. Uh, scrubbers, you are the talk to us about scrubbers. And um, unfortunately, I, I briefly understand what is scrubbers and how much um, it costs and uh, what a problem it is. But um, I don't think everybody here is a, a captain like me. And maybe you should. And, uh, extend and enlarge a little bit and explain what is the scrubbers and how much they cost per ship and how much a fleet of, um, I understand that uh, from the previous 
channels that the small companies do not have a great future. So we have now to talk for big companies, large companies like 50 ships, 100 ships. So on a company of 50 ships, for example, what the cost of scrubbers will be? This is one of my simple questions, so everybody understands. The second, I understand, Mucirios, Nikos, Masipe, that we therefore will now go slow steam ourselves. We will go low steam, slow steam, slow steam. But if we only go slow steam ourselves, what good that will be at the end? I would expect that you, before five of you, together with the unions and everybody, make again the necessary presentations to the appropriate IMO and other authorities that you have in mind, that you uh, are imposing this, and try to explain to them that after the experience we have got and the analysis of the statistics we got up to now, their system, as they see it, is not going to work. And uh, my last comment is about ships, about ships without seafarers. Yes. Ships, ships, ships without seafarers is not going to be an asset anymore. It's going to be a liability. The more ships will have as a, as a family, as a company, as a nation in your lifetime, it will be a problem to find the appropriate, well-trained and educated, educated, educated and, and women to operate your ships and even these people that came to, to give you money to buy more ships and extend the merch and so on. The more ships will, you will have, the less will they want to see you. So, and don't tell me, please, that we don't have, there is nothing we can do on this respect. You know very well that if we agree on the consequences, it is your duty to find solutions. Solutions. It is your duty to convince the governments. It is your duty to do what is needed to delay this to happen.
Αυτό. Αυτά κύριε και ευχαριστώ πολύ. One thing, slow speed. It's a very early discussion yet. Uh, there's going to be quite a lot of resistance from the cargo side. No question about this. But there's going to be a lot of support from the environmental organizations. I don't know if slow speed is a good thing or a bad thing, you know, for the average ship owner. I suspect it's a good thing for some and not a good thing for others. But the fact remains that if we go back to the elementary principle which always in the terms of pollution uh, has been applied, he who pollutes uh, must pay for it. So if somebody wants to go with a super fast speed, then he must pay more than somebody who can live with a lower speed. The question is whether the slow speed concept will prove to be a commercially viable proposition. And th there is still very early discussion for this. Autonomous ships, I know how much this is in your heart. I can assure you the industry, the industry's first reaction is quite negative, quite negative. The proposals come mostly from genius engineers and, and, and operators and port people and so on. The industry itself has been extremely reserved. And frankly speaking, I at least don't see this coming in a big way for the big ships, for the big transportation. I don't know. For the next 20, 30 years, I don't see this coming. Slow? Ah, what? Well, you know, this is the reason, this is the reason why the industry is against it. A, because we don't want to lose the crews, not only because they are on board our ships, but we are expecting these crews upon disembarkation to come to our offices. So you will have an autonomous ship and you will have nobody to look after the bows. You will have an autonomous office with nobody. But Panagioti, I'm not too worried about this. Neither you nor I will be around to see this day, so <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. These young people maybe, but you know, I you doubt. and I don't need to worry. I personally doubt about it. I would like to ask with your permission a question to myself. Uh, certainly slow steaming sounds good because the, the lower the speed, the less production of CO2. But then we have to consider, that's why Panos was correct when he said that we have to give due consideration to this topic. To go from uh, point a, port A to port B, you may need more time. So you will be producing CO2 for a longer period. And then you may need more ships actually to facilitate the same trade. So I don't know where the end result will be. <laughs> Thank you.
Can I make a comment about the availability of low sulfur fuel in, uh, from 2020? Just to remind the audience that 20 years ago, the same exactly discussion took place in Brussels about the automotive diesel fuel. There were two sides in the room, the engine companies and the oil companies, and one was accusing the other, saying, make the engine to, to run with, uh, uh, with, high with high sulfur, or the engine companies were accusing the, the refineries that they can produce it without such a cost. Experience showed, initially, there's almost zero sulfur diesel was at a high cost. As soon as demand picks up, the prices went down and low sulfur diesel was produced. So let's not be so pessimistic. If there is demand, the refineries will produce it. Okay, well, thank you very much. I'd like to thank the panelists uh, because I think you know, given how long everyone has stayed and we've overrun the, the session by 20 minutes, so we've been up here for an hour, I think that you know, this is a testament to their uh, experience and knowledge and their ability to impart this to the audience. So I'd really like to thank them very much.